0: Welcome to the Holy Roman Empire's History Podcast, I will be your host, KSK, and today we are going to talk about the early dynasties. So let's start off by the fall of the Roman Empire, the actual Western Roman Empire. The fall of the Western Roman Empire was very much slower than presented in classical history. The empire did not fall with the sack of Rome, it actually fell quite slower. We are going to jump at a later date. Let's start with the year 250. The Franks, a northern barbarian tribe of Germanic people, loosely held, come into Gaul and wreak havoc up to Spain. They are eventually pushed back. We are going to talk about mostly the Salic or Salian Franks. From them came the dynasties that we care about. The two dynasties that we care about in this episode are going to be the Merovingians and the Carolingians. Let us start with the Merovingians. In the year 418 up to 486, the Roman government around the area of Soissons, is maintained, here's the trick. Gaul has fell to barbarians, except Soissons, which is from Normandy to the Rhine, essentially. But everywhere around it, it's completely taken by barbarians. And they, they still answer, they effectively answer to Rome and Italy, which is still in the Western Roman Empire by this time. Although loosely held, they are a pocket state that is trying to survive. Even called Kingdom of Soissons, even though it is nominally part of the Western Roman Empire. Now we are we are there in Soissons, and there is a certain Merove or Merovec, the leader of the Frankish Salians. The record. Are not very clear around him he is semi-legendary we are not sure how he existed if he existed and to which extent the deeds he did he actually did all right 448 Merove or Merovec or Mirwig the young depending of the language chosen son of Clodion, king of the Sadian Franks of Isil which is Cambrai today, wants to preserve his acquired domain. And there is a slight problem. The Huns are coming. He allies himself with the Visigoths, who are on the side of Rome for that moment. And together, the Romans, uh, the Franks led by Merovec and the Visigoths stop the advance of the Huns during the Battle of Chalon and that is where Merovech really starts to get his tribe very much more centralized uh, which is contrary to his cousin uh, tribe the Ripurian Franks who are less cohesive they are living a little bit uh, west of the of the Rhine and they sack city Roman cities Their treaties are not very clear with the Romans and they are essentially treated as any other raiding party. Merovec essentially becomes the founding figure of the Merovingian dynasty of kings, making a sudden rise in Frankish dominance in the region. And it is uh, likely to say that it is to the detriment of the Frisian. Uh, They are a northern tribe and they cannot um, assess their power on the region anymore to be clear the region we are talking about is essentially belgium and north of belgium the low countries in belgium now we're jumping some years ahead there there is very much a lot of things that are happening with the franks and the minor frankish kings but I do not think it is essential to the history of the Holy Roman Empire. Point being, let's simply say where the dynasty comes from, where do they hold their legitimacy from, how does it affect the creation of the empire. Now, Ch- Childeric I is uh, the son of the king of the Sadian Franks of Isel, which is Merovec he essentially pushes back the saxons and reunifies and takes more territory from uh, romans from uh, neighboring tribes and gets his uh, frankish kingdom going faster and faster and at this point in time there there are petty kings in the franks and also in other tribes they essentially hold a very small territory and otto uh, declare themselves kings through some small form of legitimacy and Childeric has a son his name is Clovis and he succeeds him and he forges the main body of Franks into the Merovingian kingdom uh, by killing the minor kings and uh, essentially repossessing what he understands as being his land Uh, whether that be true or not is not important. Uh, what is important is that he is unifying the territory and making something that would look like a true kingdom. It's it not simply its not simply a uh, voyaging tribe. They are getting settled. They, they start to have borders. Now, again, we are jumping some years ahead. Um, the Franks conquered the Alemanni people in the Battle of Tolbiac, in 496, still led by Clovis, and the victory is very much narrow. Um, they could have lost everything. Ironically, Clovis allied himself with minor Frankish kings, which he de- you destroyed years prior to that. Some were still left, and that is some form of basis of aristocracy. Together, they they won against the Alemanni and they also won against the Burgundians which are a southeastern tribe in Gaul and the kingdom really got going at that point. Clovis at that point decided that he would become a Christian and he was the first barbarian Christian king and won, that won him an increased support from his uh, subjects in Gaul which he was conquering and the people in Gaul were mainly christians the from, from the former roman empire and there is a really great painting that from 1837 by françois louis de juin and it is a romanticized painting of Clovis being Christianized by uh, what appears to be a bishop or an archbishop surrounded by his uh, barbarian aristocracy. It's, it has a certain sense of power, of legit- legitimacy, and it is a great painting. And in the year 507, Clovis defeats the Visigoths and he forces them out of Gaul. Although the Saxon people from the north pressure the Franks so much that they have to essentially leave the low countries, they take the place of the kingdom of Soissons, which was, if you remember at the beginning of the podcast, the western enclave of the Roman Empire, which at this point exists no more. And they take that place. They are now a kingdom, a Christian kingdom, although paganism in, in the kingdom is observed. And Clovis changes the capital to uh, a small minor tribe, which are known as the Parisi, and takes, the ca- takes that as his capital, which is Paris. From then on, the Franks expand in Gaul, and they really start expanding everywhere. Although the Rhine becomes a certain limit to their expansion because of the Saxon people which are so numerous and very very strong the Franks have a really hard time expanding there therefore they they go south and mostly southeast into Italy and into what's left of Gaul and we're we're going to see later how they even go Into northern Spain and up to uh, uh, today's Austria. Now what happens is that the Merovingians become either puppet kings of the aristocracy or warrior kings. There is a lot of infighting between the Merovingians themselves descendants of Merovec. Now even though the kingdom of the Franks is expanding tremendously fast the different dynastic families of Merovingian uh, between brothers bicker themselves for land and what happens is there is a slow but steady power shift that goes into the hands of the aristocracy. The aristocracy leads arms obviously and have a lot of men and have a lot of local power where they are, are situated. Now the most powerful aristocratic house is the house of the Carolingians. In the Frankish kingdom there is a very important position it is called mayor of the palace. The mayor of the palace essentially holds power over the king and if he can if the king cannot prove his legitimacy then the mayor of the palace which holds holds armies holds troops the king also and there's a clash Whoever shows more power is leading. And now the Merovingians are um, dividing their power structure because the land becomes so stretched that they have to have their troops almost everywhere to calm local revolts or to eventually expand their territory when uh, it is presented and to defend the territory. The mayor of the palace that we're going to jump to is Charles Martel. Now we are in the year 715 approximately. There are some intestine troubles in the uh, Frankish kingdoms and Charles Martel happens to essentially hold reign over the Merovingian kings. By 732 Charles Martel, which is not yet known as Charles Martel, he is simply known as Charles, is leading the Regnum Francorum, which means in Latin, Kingdom of Franks. He is the de facto leader of the Kingdom of the Franks. Even though the kings are Merovingians, he leads the armies, he leads the uh, the, uh, aristocracy around him, he also does the administration of the Country. Now, Charles, known later as Martel or the Hammer, gets information from the south that the Saracens are coming with some 90,000 troops and he leads his armies and the armies of the Franks to defeat them at Tours. We could do two episodes, five episodes on uh, that event which changed the course of history for the Franks and to some level for the Christian myth in uh, the Middle Ages also but through the expulsion of the Muslim conquerors thus ending the Muslim conquests in uh, Western Europe he installs his legitimacy even more because now the troops not only respect him but start to believe that they are fighting for a greater cause. Again we are jumping now to 750 approximately. The early 8th century really saw how the Merovingians lost their power and influence And that power and that influence was uh, in the hand of their deputies, uh, the aristocracy which was mainly the Carolingian uh, mayors of the palace. They exercised authority throughout the Frankish kingdom and they led troops, they they even conquered, Uh, they took the land of the Bavarians and they defeated the Muslims uh, coming from the south. Now something important happened a palace usurpation took place and the Pope was backing the Carolingian it was Pepin III who was able to send the last Merovingian king into a monastery thus ending his line stalling himself as the first Carolingian king of the Franks Pepin was not notable for anything fantastic. What he really did great was that he had a son named Charles, who would later be known as Charles the Great Charlemagne. And we will really insist on his history uh, throughout this podcast. Charlemagne created what was the Frankish Empire Now in essentially 400 years a small tribe in the low countries became a rival not in name to the Eastern Roman Empire. It was a tribe technologically was not on par with the Romans but still united much of the Western Roman Empire and even more. Now Pippin Although not, not the great leader, he is maybe not as notable as the others. He is still the first Carolingian king, which is a tremendous accomplishment. And he conquers um, Aquitaine, which is the southernmost part of Gaul or today's France. And as he dies, he divides his kingdom into two for his two sons. And Charlemagne gains uh, parts of Aquitaine, Neustria, which is western France, Austrasia, uh, some Germanic dependencies in the north, parts of Burgundy, southern Austrasia, Alsace, and Alemania. It's essentially from the southernmost part of France going all the way north and then some east and his brother gets the central part of france and going east charlemagne took the reins of power and united the whole frankish kingdoms and proceeded to even expand it over the following years fighting the lombards the saxons the arabs in spain the bavarians and the the Avars in hungary uh, also And he wins and wins again and always wins. And essentially it becomes an empire. It isn't a kingdom no more. It is very much too big to be considered a kingdom. And it is also centralized. It is very functional as a kingdom. Uh, The levies are held. uh, The dukes are reigned in. The aristocracy answers to Charlemagne. He is most likely one of the most powerful kings of the Middle Ages, Charlemagne essentially ends up in the year 800, the creation of something new. The Pope makes an alliance with him in order to create the Holy Roman Empire. Now, let us talk about the life of Charlemagne himself. Charlemagne, who is also known as Charles I, and by his other name, Charles the Great, is born on April 2, 747. That date is not clear. Although what is certain is that he died on January 28, 814, at Aachen in Austrasia, uh, today's part of Germany. He was the king of the Franks from 768 to his death, and he also was the king of the Lombards from 774. He was also the first emperor from 800 to 814, which is to be known later as the Holy Roman Empire. Now, how he came to be. His father, Pippin, was a powerful Frank aristocrat and very wealthy also. In uh, the realm of the Merovingians. And the Merovingians ruled essentially over the Carolingians, uh, led most of the aristocracy, were very much wealthier than the Merovingians and less fragmented. Thus, they essentially established power over the Merovingians. And with the aid of the Pope, uh, Pippin became king of the Franks instead of the Merovingian dinast- dynasty and forged the Carolingian dynasty. Everything started from Charles Martel in 714, 741, when he essentially took over power with his armies as he defeated the Muslim invasion from the south. Now, Pippin died in 768. The realm was divided, as is custom, to the Frank people. Uh, He had two sons, two legitimate sons, Charlemagne and Carloman, and both of them became very bitter enemies. Charlemagne ruled the western part of Francia, and his uh, brother the eastern part. He uh, married the daughter of Desiderius, who was king of the Lombards. Lomb- uh, Lombards were a nomad, um, used to be a nomadic people, but settled in the northern Italy. Charlemagne married his daughter in order to forge an alliance with him to curb the power of his brother who was on the Eastern Front. And this alliance also helped him forge some kind of peace and to establish a dominance to the papal states that reigned in central Italy, who felt threatened by Desiderius and his Lombards. Now, Charlemagne died in 771. And the crisis was ended, essentially, but Charlemagne did not abide by the law of the Franks. Instead of the land being given to the sons of Charlemagne, he took power over eastern Francia and united the realm once again. And he was sole king of the Franks. Now, let's immediately jump to his military campaigns. They were very numerous. There were enemies in the state and enemies at the frontier and the separatists had to be crushed which he did greatly. And the enemies at the frontiers would mostly be Saxons and Frisians. Saxons and Frisians were allies and they were at the northern borders of the Frankish realm. Now the, the hardest campaign he led was the campaign against the Saxons. They were enemies from their conception. And at this point, the Saxons were uh, paganic people. Um, We're going to later read um, Einhart, who was uh, a biographer of Charlemagne, his account on uh, the encounter with the Saxons. It is very um, bloody, and he sees Saxons as... A form of pure evil. The wars lasted uh, some 30 years from 772 to 804. It ended in Frankish victory and annexation of a big portion of territory uh, between the Rhine and the Elbe rivers. It was a terrible war. Uh, when Saxons uh, obtained truces, they would break them, uh, mass killings of population, deportation of rebellious Saxons. Uh, and measures that were considered draconian to uh, force Saxons to accept Christianity and uh, Frankish defeats here and there of course. Also to add that the Frisians who were Saxon allies who lived to the west and by the North Sea um, were uh, forced into submission also. But Charlemagne did not only focus on uh, the war with Saxony, well the many wars it It was mostly a a whole campaign against the Saxons. Throughout the campaign, he also led various wars. When in 771, he became uh, the only king of the Franks when his brother died, did not have love for his wife, who we remember was Lombard, uh, actually the daughter of Desiderius. Very soon after the Pope Adrian I... Asked for protection um, from the Lombards in northern Italy, Charlemagne, of course, jumped on ship immediately. The Casubelli, the reason of war, was to confirm the papal rights to the territories conceded by Charlemagne's father, essentially a central portion of Italy. And he led the war with the Lombard king, and he won in 781 and created the subkingdom uh, of Italy to his son Pippin, and crowned himself king of the Lombards. Now he's wielding two crowns. He also led campaigns in the south. The Moors, how they called them, would uh, from time to time loot and pillage uh, southern Frank territories in Aquitaine. Essentially, what um, um, Charlemagne did is he established a a march which is a territory, a very fortified military territory with large portion of autonomy from the Pyrenees uh, and the Ebro River. It is not a great portion of land, but is, it is very much defendable. And from that point on, the, the, the raiding parties of uh, the Muslims were essentially crushed. From 787 to 788, Charlemagne annexed Bavaria. And what happened is that the empire was beginning to stretch very large. And he was in direct contact with the Avars, which was a tribe in Hungary. And he was also in contact with the Slavs on the eastern most part of the empire, which, is, which was at that point Bavaria. From that point on, he opened the missionary f- field that led the, essentially to the conversion of those peoples to Christianity and many many very much uh, trade opportunities. It's almost unbelievable how successful he was in his military conquest. Therefore, he led many administrative uh, works and led the state to a more centralized type. Maybe he remembered the Merovingian rules, how they were uh, very weak kings and the fragmentation of the state led them a situation where there were kings no more. He very much invested in scholars and artists also locally and the court played a really important role in the production of manuals and other teaching uh, methods to learn Latin, to learn what is to be a Christian and faith and the origins and essentially scripture for the masses and for the elites also. Uh, That helped a lot to propagate the Carolingian Minuscule, which was a new writing system made to copy easier, older works and was uh, spread among uh, the realm. He uh, sent a lot of money to uh, the poets and historiographs and and the biblical exegesis theologians who would uh, analyze the Bible and explain it in... uh, vernacular and easier to understand ways. His uh, famous uh, work is uh, the Palatine Chapel in Aachen who in 794 was uh, finished and was Charlemagne's favorite uh, royal residence and a masterpiece of Carolingian architecture. It's also important to note that it was Charlemagne's imperial church. The famous coronation of 800 the pope was blinded and he asked for help for charlemagne to come and charlemagne came and helped him out therefore the pope crowned him emperor of the franks and the romans and some in some holy way but historians are debating that question since the question arose did he did charlemagne play on that role? Did Charlemagne want the the title and did that in consort with the Pope? Or was it that the Pope, only to further his own safety, personal safety, and eventually his power, would grant that title to infiltrate his uh, non-secular power into a secular world, maybe create some kind of extreme theocracy? Now, Einhardt, whom I mentioned earlier, who was Charlemagne's biographer, said that Charlemagne, if he knew that he would be proclaimed emperor in 800, would not have come to Rome. Now, that's questionable because he very much respected the title and even had uh, letters written to the emperors of the East. Considering the conjecture that happened at that time and the crises that was plaguing the Eastern Roman Empire, which is Byzantium, it is possible to assess that Charlemagne did much indeed like the title, but he did not see it as some form of title that is um, to stay, and it's not something that you would grant to your children or. It was uh, titular. It was simple. It was He was emperor in name. He was proclaimed Augustus also. But he did not see it as, in my opinion, as something that was there to stay. Because when he died, the title did not follow up. He divided his land to his three sons. Well, he actually had over 15 sons, but to his three legitimate sons. And to add... To my argument, when he was declared emperor, he retained the title king of the Franks and Lombards. So he did not see the title of emperor as... He did not see it even... At best, he saw it as equal. At worst, he saw it under. In my understanding, the title of emperor for him was some kind of reward that was given to him uh, for his aid of the papacy. Now, the Saxon Wars, according to Einhardt, I am citing everything from here on now. Now, Charlemagne restarted his war against the Saxons. The Franks never fought another war with such persistence, bitterness or effort, because the Saxons, like almost all the German tribes, were a fierce people who worshipped devils and were hostile to our religion. They did not consider it dishonorable to violate any law, human or divine. Every day there had been fighting, except where forest or mountain fridges formed clear boundaries. The whole boundary between us and the Saxons ran through the open country, so that there was no end to the murders, thefts, and arsons on both sides. The Franks therefore became so embittered that they at last resolved to make reprisal no longer, but to come to open war with the Saxons. The war lasted 33 years with great fury, and the Saxons came off worse than the Franks. It would have ended sooner had it not been for the duplicity of the Saxons. They were conquered repeatedly and humbly submitted to king, promising to do follow his commands. Sometimes they were so wicked that they promised to renounce their worships of the devils and to adopt Christianity, but they were as quick to violate the terms as they were to accept them. This kind of thing happened almost every year of the war, but Charlemagne's steadfast purpose faced good and bad fortune alike and he was never wearied by the fickleness or diverted from his task. He never allowed the faithless behavior to go unpunished, either fighting them in person or sending in his count's armies to get vengeance and righteous satisfaction. At last, after conquering and subduing all who resisted, he resettled 10,000 of his subjects. With their wives and children throughout Gaul and Germany. This long war finally ended with the Saxons submitting to Charlemagne's terms, renouncing to their national religious custom and the worship of devils, accepting the sacrament of Christian faith and religion and uniting with the Franks to form one people. This is a very romanticized, uh, analysis uh, by Einhard, although he was there and he essentially saw what happened, and that's how it was presented to the people. Now, in conjunction with history, it is clear that the Saxons w- were enemies with the Franks, and maybe their fate was strong, or maybe even someone would say that culturally they did not come close one to another. Uh, but those wars were not uh, in in the name of... The, maybe they were in the name of the fate, but they were essentially to pacify uh, the borders. To end this podcast, we'll finish up with the death of Charlemagne on uh, January 28, 814, and the division of his land to his three sons. The Westernmost part, the Occidental Kingdom, was given to Charles, The central part, the Francia Media, was given uh, to the King Lothar, his other son. And Francia Orientalis, the easternmost part, was given to Louis, the German, who formed the Kingdom of Germany thereafter. In the next episode, we will shortly analyze what the Treaty of Verdun 843, the division of the land, uh, led to quickly jump to Otto II, who forged the Holy Roman Empire as it is most known. Charlemagne uh, effectively created the first Holy Roman Empire and the whole idea of it, but the Holy Roman Empire as known today with the elector counts and princes and marches and dukes and kings will be the creation of Otto II And in the next episode, we will explore that mostly. I have been your host, KSK. Thank you very much for listening.